study tonight through the book of Galatians on living life in the liberty of Christ. And in the first chapter, Paul has talked about the source of the gospel, how there can only be one gospel and that gospel can only come from God. And he's given his defense and how he received the revelation of of the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, that he did not need to confer with men and he didn't get his gospel from other men, but he got it from Jesus. And so he talks about how he did go to Jerusalem at certain points uh, in the early stages of his conversion, but it was not to get the gospel from them because he already had it. So we're kind of coming in in the middle of, of this section even though it's a new chapter here, we realize the chapter points are not inspired. Those were added by men, uh, but uh, it kind of breaks it up nicely there. But we're going to pick up our reading in verse one and we'll read through verse 10. So if you'll stand in honor of God's word, once you find your place there in Galatians chapter two. So the apostle Paul writes, then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them, which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person for they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was committed was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. Now, as you read through that section, that's a little bit of a tough read. <laughs> it's one of those sections with the Apostle Paul where he interrupts himself constantly. If it was us doing it today on a computer, we would hit backspace and make sure it all flows together. But they're just kind of writing. So he would just kind of add things in there to further clarify and explain and so it's kind of rough to read but I believe after we go through it that it'll be clear to understand and so the title of our message tonight is going forward in the fellowship of the gospel so may God bless reading his word you can be seated it's possible to be different and yet to be the same it's possible to be different and yet to be the same you think about a family, within a family, you have individuals who may share some resemblances with each other, but there are going to be differences there, maybe in hair color or in eye color or height or body type or personalities. I mean, you're just going to have differences within even an immediate family, but although there are differences, 
they're still the same family. And when we consider here in the United States of America, we're a very diverse society. We have people from all different backgrounds. We're a nation of immigrants. And so we've got a lot of different types of last names. <laughs> we've even, even in here from Martinez to Viela to Brock. I mean, that's about as wide variety as you can get in just a few people. And so uh, we've got different cultural backgrounds, different skin tones, different languages. And so we've got all these differences. And yet, for the most part, we're all Americans. And so even though we're different, we're still the same. But it's also possible to be the same and yet be different. Isn't that saying the same thing? Yes, but follow along with me. <laughs> Think of the NFL. You've got over 1,600 players in the NFL, 1,600 football players. They would all classify as football players, and yet they are parts of different teams, parts of different conferences, parts of different position groups. They play different positions. And so while you've got everybody under the realm of football players, they are the same, and yet they're different. In the U.S., we have Americans. We are Americans, but you also have Coloradoans and Californians and New Yorkers and Texans and that's very different from each other and so even though we're all Americans we do still have some differences so I say all that again to say just one more time that it's possible to be different and yet the same and it's possibly the same and yet be different there's a movement within Christianity that says this we're all Christians, which means we're all the same, which means we shouldn't be different. Okay? It's the, de it's the desire that every denomination should put aside their doctrinal differences and should come together so that the gospel can go forward. That sounds very nice up front. It sounds appealing. It sounds attractive that, yes, we need to get the gospel to people. People need to be saved. But the reality is that while we all may fall under the same realm of Christianity, there is a vast ocean of differences in belief within Christianity. And many of those beliefs that are different completely contradict one another. And so some believe in a works-based moralistic salvation. There are some who believe in a universalist salvation, that faith doesn't matter and that everybody's going to get saved in the end. And we've talked kind of extensively about some of these. There are some that believe that God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved, regardless of whether or not they want to put their faith in Jesus Christ. You have some who believe that you have to keep the Old Testament law. There are some who believe that, yes, you need Jesus to be saved, but you need to do good works to maintain your salvation. Those are all very different gospels that ultimately lead to very different Christianities. And so although we might exist under the realm of Christianity, although we may be the same, we can be very different. So here's the question. We know it's important for the gospel to go forward, but how does the gospel go forward when there's so much difference between Christianity. How do we know who we should collaborate with, who we should fellowship with, who we should partner together with in order for the gospel to go forward? Those are important questions that need to be addressed. And that's really what the issue that the Apostle Paul was dealing with here 
because he's writing to the Galatian believers because a false gospel has infiltrated their church and has threatened to bring them back into bondage of the Old Testament law. And what had happened is really even before Paul went to Galatia, there were already false teachers that had been rising up. Evidently, in the only places we know that he ministered into before his first missionary journey when he went to Galatia was in Syria and Cilicia and specifically in Antioch. And so evidently what had happened based on the, this account that he gives us in chapter 2 is that Judaizers had already risen up in those areas who were telling these churches that Paul preaches a different gospel than the one they preach in Jerusalem, the one that the Jerusalem apostles preach. And so they had already been insinuating that. And so what, as Paul is dealing with this, with the church of Galatia, this is nothing new. <laughs> this is something he's already dealt with. And what he does is he tells them that something's already been done about this. There's, I've already gone through this, and it's already been taken care of. The matter's already been settled. And so Paul lays out here how he went to Jerusalem and how that matter was settled once and for all. And by the end of it, you find Peter, James, and John extending the hands of fellowship to the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, signifying this. We are in one accord together in the gospel ministry. We are in line here. We agree. And so it was clearly important, though, as we'll see from this text, that Paul wanted to go and make sure that they were in agreement. And what we need to understand is why it was that, that Paul wanted to be sure that the gospel goes forward and that, that they could go forward together. Why was it important for them to agree? And we need to know how we discern how we should go forward and how we should collaborate with people when it comes to the gospel ministry. But individually speaking, I want to address this issue. Why is what you believe about the gospel important? And so let's delve into this tonight. Paul has traveled to Jerusalem to ensure that, the, that he and the apostles were in agreement on the gospel. Now, the timeline of events here isn't quite clear. It says in verse number one, and 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And so he says this is 14 years after he had gone to Peter the first time. But he says in the previous chapter that he went to Peter, he spent 15 days there. That would be talking about Acts chapter 9. Shortly after his conversion, the first time that he went down to Jerusalem was the first time he met Peter and the first time he met James, the Lord's brother there. And so we know it's not talking about chapter 9. And then you go to chapter 15 and you have the Jerusalem Council where they met together specifically about this matter. The, the church at Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem and they were trying to meet with the apostles, with, with the churches down there to decide, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law? And at that council, they together came to the conclusion that no, they don't need to be uh, circumcised. They don't need to keep the Old Testament law because they received the Holy Ghost just like we received it in Jerusalem. So that indicates to us that this is the same salvation. And so they said that, that no, they don't need to be. And so it's not talking about Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem Council, and there's a few reasons for that. Number one is that, uh, that this meeting was private. That meeting was public. It was a council. It was a whole group of a bunch of pastors. But he's going to say here that he went to Peter, James, and John privately here. And so there's that difference. And then you also have 
that in Acts chapter 15, the church of Antioch sent him, like I mentioned, but it says in this one that he went there at the beginning of verse 1, and I went up by revelation. And so he was directly told by God in some manner to go down to Jerusalem at this point. And so there's that slight difference as well. So when is this talking about? Well, it indicates that it's talking about Acts chapter 11. This is not something that we would break fellowship over. Uh, but it seems to imply that it was Acts chapter 11 when the Apostle Paul was ministering in Antioch alongside Barnabas and the prophet Agabus came there and said there's going to be a famine that's going to decimate the Judean region. And so then Paul and Barnabas and the rest of the church at Antioch determined to send relief to them and they sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so that, that's when I think <laughs> that this particular meeting that we're going to look at happened there might be some question there as to uh, uh, Titus because did he meet Titus there in Antioch was Titus from Antioch or we're not real clear as to where he met Titus but it seems to be that that it would point to Acts chapter 11 and so Paul comes down to Jerusalem and he meets privately with James Cephas which is Peter and John now it says in verse number two that I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation. And so he doesn't give their names up front here, but he says them which were of reputation. The idea of reputation there is that they, they're ones who give their opinion. Their opinions were highly valued. They were highly influential people, but he's going to tell us in chapter nine or verse number nine that it was James and Cephas and John. And so he's so I'm just going to go ahead and, and mention that it's them. But it says he comes to them privately and he tells he, he communicates that literally means to lay it out on the table. He says, I laid out my gospel on the table. This is what I preach among the Gentiles. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Jesus alone, apart from any works of the law. And so that's that's what I preach. So he lays it out there on the table. Now, why did Paul go to them in the first place? Because if we look back at chapter one, what does he say? I didn't confer with flesh and blood. <laughs> I didn't go and get my gospel from anybody else. I got it directly from the Lord Jesus. It didn't come to be by man, neither by men. And so why does he decide then to go to Jerusalem? Well, what had happened again is that these Judaizers had been coming on the scene and they were saying Paul's preaching a different gospel than the Judean brethren are. And so there's a controversy here. And what was happening is because these Judaizers were telling these churches in Syria and Cilicia and perhaps even in Antioch at that time that Paul was preaching a different gospel is they were saying, well, the gospel that's preached at Judea, I mean, that's where it originated. So that must be the true one. So they were going back to the works of the law. They were being circumcised. They were keeping the dietary laws and the holy days and all those things. And so so what he says here is that he went and communicated the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation. Look what he says, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. What's he saying there? It sounds like Paul is concerned that he might have had his gospel wrong, that he wanted to make sure that it was right. But we can go back to chapter one and see, no, he wasn't concerned about that. He wasn't concerned that he was wrong because he got it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. What this is actually insinuating is he is saying, I know without a doubt that my gospel is wrong or right. And if this is what's going around out there, that they're preaching a different gospel that takes you back to the Old Testament law, then I need to come to them and make sure they're preaching the right gospel. 
That's really what it implies here. And so when he says, lest by any means I should, I should run or had run in vain, what he's talking about is this. I don't want to make sure, I want to make sure that every single place that I'm going to and I'm preaching the true gospel, that people aren't coming behind me and persuading other people and then I'm left empty handed and fruitless. It's not selfish. What he's concerned about is that these people are going to be delivered from liberty back into bondage. And so he's concerned about that. So what does he do? He goes to Jerusalem to settle the matter. Are you guys preaching the wrong gospel? Because <laughs> I know mine's right. But it says in verse 3, here's what happens. He takes Titus with him. And it says that as he comes down to them, it says, But neither Titus, who is with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He says, here's what happened. When I went down to Jerusalem to see if they were preaching the right gospel, you know what I found? They didn't make Titus be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And so that's the first thing that tells me, no, they're not preaching what the Judaizers are saying they're preaching because they didn't make him be uh, circumcised. And then look at verse number five or verse four. It says, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in. It says that uh, what did they do? Who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring us into bondage. This is crazy when you really think about what's going on here. Paul and Barnabas come with Titus, and I believe Titus was there on purpose to see what they would do with him. And so he brings Titus, and, and when he shows up with the apostles, evidently here's what happens. It was revealed that when he came down to Jerusalem that there were some false brethren in the church. That word false brethren is pseudadelphos. Adelphos would be the brother, pseudo brothers is what they were. In other words, they were brothers in name only, but not in reality. It says that they had been unawares brought in. You know what that means? They came in secretly. They didn't reveal what they believed up front. Boy, isn't that what happens in churches? People aren't up front about what they believe when they come in and really their intent. They have ulterior motives to try to pull people away from that church. That's what had happened here. These brothers, who, these false brothers who were Judaizers, they crept in. That's what it means. They crept in. They were creeps. <laughs> and so you got these creeps creeping into the church, and they had been operating underneath the surface. They had been involved in the church and yet not been confronted and not come out what they believed. But evidently, here's what happened. When Paul came, these false brethren came up and said, he's a Greek, he needs to be circumcised. But what he says is that we, the apostles, look, look what he says. Oh, hold on, let me address this. What were they doing there? He says they came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. That word spy out, it means to inspect. It means to view more closely. And it has this implication as well in an effort to plot against. I mean, think of what a spy is. They're trying to infiltrate. They're trying to see how these people operate. Why? So they can defend against it. That's the perspective that he lays on what these people were doing. They were coming in. They were spying out their liberty in Christ. Why? That they might bring us into bondage. So that's how we know these were Judaizers. He uses bondage, which is something he's going to use throughout in referring to going back to the Old Testament law. And so and so the picture is that Titus came. They said, this guy needs to be circumcised. They showed their colors. And Paul and Barnabas and the apostles all together, look what they did in verse 5. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, 
He says, we didn't put up with that. We collectively gave them no place. In other words, they couldn't find their place in the church anymore. They were put out. They broke fellowship with them because they were preaching a false gospel. And so these were pseudo brethren who were trying to teach these teach people behind the scenes here that they needed the Old Testament law in order to find acceptance with God. They needed to become Jews. They needed to keep all of those things. Now, the gospel that these pseudo brethren were preaching and teaching was a fundamentally different gospel which would produce a fundamentally different Christianity. See, the, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, yields itself to liberty. To liberty from what? From salvation and acceptance by the works of the law. In other words, it's free. It's by grace, through faith in Christ. And so it, it's, it, so it would yield itself to liberty. He says that their gospel, the fact that they would have to uh, have Christ, but also have Jewish nationalism, they would also have to have the dietary laws and the holy days, that would lend itself to bondage. There is a fundamental difference between freedom and bondage. <laughs> There's a huge difference there. That now, instead of depending on Christ for acceptance with God, you're depending on your own works of your own righteousness for acceptance with God. That means that you do things, uh, you do good things to be accepted with God rather than doing good things because you are accepted with God. There's a big difference there. Can I tell you, I didn't earn the last name Martinez. I might have deserved to lose it a few times in my life, but I didn't do anything to earn it. I was born into the family. Well, listen, you're born into the family of God, born again into the family of God. You're adopted into God's family. You're grafted into God's family. It's not because of any of our own righteousness, which we have done, but it's because he went to the cross and he paid the price for our sin. He took our sentence upon himself so that we could go free, so we could have liberty. And so when you should have liberty and you're delving into a salvation and acceptance with God that's by your own righteous works, what it does is instead of giving you the liberty that comes with the grace of Jesus Christ, it sends you back into the prison trying to earn your way out of an impossible situation when he already paid the price to deliver you from it in the first place. See, fundamentally changing the gospel fundamentally changes your, Christian, your Christianity. I mean, let's think about it. When, when you think baptism saves you, that changes your Christianity. We learned this last week of a priest in Phoenix who uh, resigned because he had administered a thousand, over a thousand uh, invalid baptisms because he said, we baptized you in the name of the Father instead of I baptize you in the name of the Father. That sounds a little pharisaical to me, but that's beside the point. But now what do you have? You have over a thousand people who are trusting in their baptism for salvation. And now they're saying, was I one of the invalid ones? <laughs> Did mine count? Am I going to be saved? And now there's all the doubt and there's all the fear and there's the need to go back and be rebaptized just to be sure. And then maybe this back. See, listen, when you believe baptism saves you, that changes the direction of your Christianity. When you when you believe that salvation is decreed by God to certain individuals and not to others, that fundamentally changes your Christianity. It changes your evangelism. Why should I subject myself to the scoffing and the scorning and the mockery of going door to door when they're going to get saved no matter what I do? It changes it. 
I believe it can also have the propensity to change their faith. See, because I could see easily how somebody could place more faith in their elected status than they place in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ when you believe that. When you believe in the end, everyone's going to go to heaven regardless of whether or not they have faith in Christ. It means you can live however you want. It doesn't make any difference. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? That when you fundamentally change the gospel, it changes the entire direction of your Christian life and what you believe. See, not every gospel that is preached out there is equally valid and true, which means that there are gospels that are preached that warrant the breaking of fellowship, just like the apostles as well as Paul and Barnabas did with these Judaizers here in Jerusalem. They broke the fellowship. Well, why is it so important? Why did they, why did they cast these people out of the church? Well, if you look at the end of verse 5, look what he says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. With who? The Galatians. Now, if our timeline is correct here, and again, I'm not saying 100% that it is, but he had not been to Galatia yet at this point. But as the Apostle Paul is considering what's going on in Antioch and what's going on in Cilicia and what's going on in Syria and how these Judaizers are, are turning people back into bondage, what he's concerned about, what he's focused on, is the people in the future who will believe the gospel. He's concerned that if he's, he wants the gospel, this word continue there, it means to permanently remain the same. That it's not going to change. He said, I wanted to make sure that the gospel that I'm preaching, which he's already said I know is true, would remain the same in you. You that are in the future, that you would be believing the same gospel that I was preaching back then, we were zealous and we were, we were uh, serious about matters of the gospel. So, as Paul goes to meet with the apostles, he's met with the fact that the apostles did not compel Titus to be circumcised. And he's met with the fact that they gave no place to the same kind of false teachers that he was combating in different places and that they were combating in their church. All right, so how did their meeting go? Well, they're going to talk about the gospel, they're going to talk about their callings, and they're going to talk about the way forward. Okay, look at verse number six. But of these who seemed to be somewhat, and then he interrupts himself here. Let me just address this. This word seemed to be somewhat. It, it's the same idea of those in reputation. He's saying that although these people were in reputation, and then look what he says. Whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. Now, that sounds a little rough. Sounds a little harsh. He's not being harsh. He's not being rough with them. What, what he's just saying is this, that God is more concerned with truth than he is with person or position. Okay, and so here's what, he, here's what Paul again is communicating. I know the gospel I was preaching was true, and God knows it's true. And so even if they are the apostles of Jesus Christ, if they were preaching a different gospel, God is not, God's not going to respect their gospel because of who they are, is what he's getting at, okay? For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. And so as Paul laid out the gospel that he preached, the gospel that he believed before them, he says that when he laid it out before them, they added nothing to me. You know what that means? As they listened to the gospel that he basically preached to them, that he was preaching among the Gentiles, it's not like they said, well, 
you're almost there, but you need to add this. Or you're, you're, you're good in this area, but you need to add this to this area. It says they added nothing. You know what they were agreeing to? His gospel is sufficient. It's the right one. And so they agreed to that. They said, yeah, no, his gospel is sufficient. Look at verse 7. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed to me as the gospel of the circumcision was committed unto Peter. You want to know what they're talking about there? They came to see that they were different men, called to different people, called in different places, and yet they were preaching the same gospel. In other words, they were different, and yet they were the same. That's what they they came to realize. They were preaching the same gospel, but then also look at verse 8. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. What's he talking about now? Well, when he says, for he that wrought effectually, that's, that's the Greek word energeo, which sounds like our word energize. And that's really what it means. It's the energizing power, the energizing force behind it. Who's he talking about? He's talking about God. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what he says here is he that energized Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was, here's the same word, the same was energizing in me toward the Gentiles. And so you know what he's saying here? We're different men, called to different people in different places, but we have the same gospel and we have the same power working in both of us. And so they saw that to be true. In other words, they were different and yet the same. See, it's possible to be different and yet be preaching the same gospel. Now, there's a movement within Christianity, again, that says this. The gospel is all that matters. And so you can set aside doctrine. You can set aside practice. That really should have no bearing on fellowship. But I want to clear off a spot and just say this. That is not what this passage is teaching, that the gospel is all that matters. The gospel is the particular doctrine that this book is addressing. But the truth of the matter is, is that as you go into all the different epistles of the New Testament, you'll find that every single one of them were written to address doctrinal issues. And they all address different doctrinal issues. Romans addresses issues of the gospel and salvation. First uh, Corinthians deals with a whole host of doctrinal issues, including baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, church discipline, sign gifts. It talks about the resurrection, the return of Jesus Christ. Of course, Galatians is about the gospel. Ephesians is about salvation. Uh, Colossians is about the sufficiency of Christ. Philemon is about church uh, discipline and, and uh, restoration. And then uh, you could get into Thessalonians, which is uh, about the rapture and the return of Christ. And then you have Hebrews, which is about the superiority of Christ and his salvation. And so you've got 1 John as well. It's about eternal security. And so what you find is, is nearly, I mean, I was looking through them, and nearly every single epistle written in the New Testament is written specifically to address doctrine. What that tells me is that God cares so much about doctrine that he wanted each of these letters to be included so as to communicate what true doctrine is and what they needed to hold on to and what we need to hold on to today. In Jude 3 and 4, he writes this, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. 
For there are certain men crept in unawares. They have it again. There were creeps all over the place back then. Certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jude said, I'm writing to you because you need to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. It was delivered once and it was delivered once only. And the faith isn't just the gospel. The faith is the entirety of our belief system. And I want to point out again that the faith was delivered once. What that means is the faith doesn't evolve with culture. The faith doesn't evolve with time. The faith that we practice today is the same faith that was practiced back then. And it's the same faith that Jesus wants to be practiced until the day that he returns and even beyond. And so what this means is that we can't just look at the gospel and throw everything else out the window. We've got to realize doctrine is important. And it was so important, God included it in the scripture. And it was so important that Jesus addressed several doctrines in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, which we've covered on Thursday nights as well. And so it means that we need to focus on the gospel and on doctrine. But what I want you to understand is that the basis of doctrine flows from the gospel. It starts with the gospel. But we also need to realize this. That we are different men called to different places. So there may be a brother across town who preaches the same gospel and holds to the same doctrine, but he may be a little bit different in practice. They may do small groups on Sunday nights, and they may do home Bible studies on the midweek instead of a corporate uh, worship service. So they may dress a little different. They may use newer songs. And I'm not talking about worldly rock, and I'm not talking about worldly Christian rock and ACDC singing Amazing Grace and all. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about maybe hymns that were written in the, the last 20 years or so, the last 10 years. It's not just all traditional hymns. They might have some blend of it all together, sort of like we do here. They may use technology different. They may have chairs instead of pews. <laughs> I remember when that was a big deal, that if you have chairs, you're a compromiser. That's what all the liberals are doing. My soul, breaking fellowship over a chair, right? They may not do the same traditional order service that we do, you know, two songs and announcements and a missionary letter and another song and, and a special and a preaching and an invitation and then, a, you know, a prayer or a course, whatever it might be. They may not practice the same exact order service. They may use screens instead of hymn books, but just because they do things different, it doesn't mean there are enemies. It doesn't mean we got to spend all our time criticizing other churches it doesn't mean we got to spend all our time fighting against them. Paul was a little different every place he went. Sometimes he went to the synagogue. Other times there was a prayer meeting on the outskirts of town with some ladies. <laughs> Other times he was in the streets of the public square uh, hashing it out with skeptics and quoting from their poets and their philosophers. And so he adapted his own ministry a little bit different to every place that he went. And so what I'm trying to say is this. People in California do things different than people in Oklahoma. And people in Oklahoma do things different than in Georgia. You know, in Oklahoma, things are very traditional. In California, things might be a little more hip or a little more loose or a little more casual. And then you go to Georgia, you got people hopping in the baptistry and running aisles and shouting and screaming and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. We're all different. But it doesn't mean we're not the same. See, 
like Peter and Paul, we can be different people in different places with different callings and yet still be preaching the same gospel and holding to the same doctrine. So what do you do when you find people that are a little bit different and yet they're the same? Well, what happens in verse 9? And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. <laughs> fellowship. That's the very common New Testament word, koinonia, which means to share in common participation. You know what that means? They didn't say, well, because you still wear that Pharisaical robe, I'm not hanging out with you. Or because, or because I wear the Pharisaical robe and you don't, I'm not hanging out with you. They didn't, say, they didn't say, oh, because you're going to the Gentiles, I'm not hanging out with you. We only stick with the Jews. No, they came together. They extended the right hands of fellowship, which in their culture, in their day and time, was a formal agreement to participate together. And so they extended the hands of fellowship and what did they do? It says the end of verse 9, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. And so they agreed this. Let's just keep taking the gospel to the places God has called us and the people God has called us to. But then they also did this, verse 10. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. That's talking about how when Agabus did did tell them that that famine is going to decimate Judea and the brothers are going to suffer there. And they and he he brought that offering this time from Antioch down to them. And then he was going to go into Macedonia and he was going to go into Greece. And those churches were going to send an offering back with him to bring back to them. And so what we find is this. That because they agreed on what they believed, they came together. They extended the hands of fellowship and the gospel went forward to its respective places. So as we look at all this, why was it so important to Paul that he go to Jerusalem and settle this out? Why was it? Well, he and the apostles needed to agree on the gospel because it was the only way to go forward in the fellowship of the gospel. See, the gospel desperately needed to go forward but if they were not in agreement on the gospel, and we think about who we're talking about, the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, James, the Lord's brother, the apostle John, we're talking about who he calls to be pillars of the New Testament church. If these guys aren't in agreement on the gospel, how can the gospel possibly go forward into places like Galatia and Macedonia and Greece and Rome and eventually Spain is where Paul wanted to go. See, what would have happened is if they weren't in agreement, it would have caused confusion and it would have caused division, which would have only served to hinder the gospel. See, we've got to remember that the most important thing is for the gospel to go forward. The world is full of people who are without Christ. And if they die without Christ, they have no hope of salvation. They'll be condemned to eternal judgment in hell. And so what that means is that churches need to come together into fellowship so the gospel can go forward. And this passage tells us how we can do that. 
It teaches us that for the gospel to go forward, we have to be in agreement not only on the gospel, but we've also got to be in agreement on our doctrine, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about baptism, because you change those doctrines, it changes Christianity. Just like if you change the gospel, it changes Christianity. And so this passage teaches us that for us to go forward in the fellowship of the gospel, for us to be able to collaborate with other churches, we have to be in agreement on the gospel and on sound doctrine. And so what this means is that there are some churches we can't biblically collaborate with. It means that I can't just go over to Unity of Boulder and say, hey, let's all get together for the gospel. I can't go to the United Methodist Church and say, hey, let's get together for the gospel. There's fundamental differences there. And the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church and the, the I mean, just any other kind of denomination, really, that doesn't believe the biblical gospel and biblical doctrine, we can't get together. Why? We're not in agreement. And if we're not in agreement, that will create confusion. But it also means this, that there might be some we should be collaborating with, regardless of personality and practical differences. There are people that we shouldn't see as our enemies that we might have the tendency to. There are people that we might spend more time bashing. <laughs> I tell you this because I'm on social media and I see it. <laughs> and it goes both ways. You can have those that are extremely loose bashing those that are extremely tight. You can have those that are extremely tight bashing those that are extremely loose. When I just want to say this, most of our differences are very minuscule practices. We need to quit fighting and start focusing on reaching our community more than we are about trying to point out the faults and flaws in every pastor and their dress and their music and their, their pews and their chairs and their colors and all of that stuff. I'm just saying we have more serious things to consider because what happens is when we choose to split hairs on things other than the gospel and doctrine, what it does is it creates confusion and division that serves to hinder the gospel. And so this means, I mean, we've got our Go Forth Sunday on April 3rd. We have Micah and Alex Lassiter and their bunch of rambunctious kids coming. And uh, they are from Arden Road Baptist Church in El Paso, Texas. That church is a little different than ours. They're a little bigger than us, probably by about 600 people. <laughs> uh, they, they have really nice facilities. They own their facilities. Uh, they're reaching Texans who really need the gospel. They're, they're just reaching, and they, they might use a little bit of different music than us. Their preacher is definitely different than me. He's much more of a dignified man of God than I am. <laughs> He's a lot shorter than me, and I'm a lot bigger than him, though. And so there's differences there. But just because we're different doesn't mean we're not the same. And so we're going to have that family from their church up here who are going to El Paso, Texas, the west side of El Paso, a booming area with no independent Baptist churches on that side of town. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to take them on for support, and we're going to partner together with Arden Road Baptist Church and with the church that they're starting. Why? So the gospel can go forward in an area that's highly Hispanic. <laughs> a lot of poverty there down at the border. And they're going to go there. We're having Zach and Kate Shives. They are from... New Heights Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They just, in the last couple of years, had a merger between Tulsa Baptist Temple and Bible Baptist Temple. And so they merged their churches. And right now, the pastor of Bible Baptist Temple and the pastor of 
Tulsa Baptist Temple, they're co-pastoring that church. Each have their own responsibilities. They share the preaching response. That's a little different. But you know what? They're brothers. They're the same. They believe the same. And so we're going to have Brother Zach and Miss Kate come. And uh, they're going to Keene, New Hampshire. Keene, New Hampshire is a lot different than El Paso, Texas. There's a lot of snow there. But there's also Yankees there who might not be as kind, might not be as warm-hearted as that social love that goes on down in the South. And you know what? We're going to have them come and we're going to partner with them and we're going to see the gospel go forward as a result. Why? Because we agree on the gospel and we agree on doctrine. On our website, I send missionaries to our website and there's a form they fill out there and it touches on predominant doctrinal issues, including salvation and baptism, the Lord's Supper, and it deals with music and it deals with a bunch of different things. Why do we do that? We need to make sure we're in agreement. Why? So the gospel can go forward. And so we take some of those steps. So Paul went to meet with the apostles to be sure they were in agreement on the gospel and can collaboratively go forward with the gospel. Now, individually speaking, you need to make sure that you believe the right gospel. Why? Because gospel affects your Christianity. Gospel affects your eternity. You see, there's only one true gospel, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could go back into our own, our own moralistic way of finding acceptance with God. No, he didn't just bring you to salvation and then you've got to finish it on your own. No, he did it all and it was totally sufficient. And so if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, for salvation, for acceptance with God, and not just to be saved, but to stay saved. He, he, he wouldn't save you by grace to make you keep it by works. It's impossible. So if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, you still need to be saved, but you can be by grace through faith. Lord, we come to you tonight and thank you for